Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Sonia Leeson and you're listening to the Love Mondays podcast, The Power of Resilience, stories of struggle and success from inspiring entrepreneurs. In this series, I will be interviewing business leaders, entrepreneurs and business owners to learn more about their incredible true life stories and how they overcame adversity to build a killer business that makes a real difference in the world. Stay tuned to learn more about their game-changing strategies which took them from struggle to success. On today's podcast, I speak to Chris Dudley, Managing Director of The Coach Collective, a life coaching company who support and guide entrepreneurs through stress, anxiety and depression. I speak to Chris about his corporate career and how his challenging past and childhood spurred him into developing a business which creates results through conversation. We talk in depth about mental health, both as an entrepreneur and in day-to-day life. And Chris shares with you some of his key tips and skills that he uses with his clients to help them to overcome and manage their challenges. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. I think we might be here for a little while, as every time we always talk, there's always uh, we always go on for hours and hours. So I'm really looking forward to this. Thanks for having me on. That's fine. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about you and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a life coach and the founder of The Coach Collective. And we specialise in supporting people who are challenged by their mental health. So predominantly stress, anxiety and depression. And we do coaching programmes whereby we would work with a person to let go of their challenges that they're experiencing over the course, usually of around three months. Right. Okay. And how did you get into that? Because your background is very, very different, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. So uh, I was a university dropout. So I went to university and then after a year I gave up because I decided that I was going to be famous and that I didn't need, <laughs> I didn't need a degree to be famous. So that worked out well for me. Uh, so by the nature of that, no, yeah. So I went into, uh, I joined a band actually, okay. which was good for me at the time. So I think because of my childhood being quite introverted and not being able to be confident because of the environment that I was in. I think I craved being the centre of attention. So being in a band for a few years allowed me to get that out of my system and then move on to other things without being that kind of 36-year-old on the X Factor playing for my final hope. (laughs) But after that, I went into business. So I started working for Barclays Bank and then worked for a few organisations really over a period of about 10 years, primarily focusing on learning and development. So I found a real passion for training So working out what it is a person in an organization needed to know and then what we could do to put that in place for them. And at the time, I remember being sent as a manager on a coaching course. And through this coaching course, obviously, it was around getting your sales team to deliver a better performance. But I kind of started thinking about how you could apply the coaching models in real life. Mm. and I remember a bus journey home from the coaching training where I thought oh if you apply this stuff to your actual life you could bring around change and I think for a split second I thought I'd invented life coaching (laughs) I had this kind of moment where I thought I've invented life this this is like life coaching (laughs) and then discovered there's a whole industry that already existed you thought you were going to change the world and then so you just had to fit it was already there yeah (laughs) (laughs) So that just became became a bit of an obsession, really. And through training in neuro-linguistic programming, which is a type of coaching uh, that specifically uses language and specific tools and techniques, 
that's what supported me really in overcoming my own challenges with obsessive compulsive disorder and depression. And then after that, I became obsessed with, you know, building a business and supporting other people to do the same. But it was a long journey. So I carried on working and probably spent about five years studying coaching in its different guises before I bit the bullet and uh, went self-employed. So you went from corporate, huge corporate as well, into kind of self-employment. How was that transition for you? Scary. Yeah, yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. I think it was, I, I had, the challenge that you've got as well is we're always led to believe that we've broken free of our corporate cages. Mm. So whenever we go into self-employment, it's all like, oh, I break free from corporate. And I loved my corporate job. So I loved working in learning and development. At the time, I was the head of learning and development for a finance company, and I loved it. So it wasn't, I often say to people when there's motivations for change, either what you want to do needs to seem so appealing that you can't resist doing it, or what you're currently doing seems to, needs to be so bad that you You've can't got to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I was kind of in that middle position where work wasn't bad. And equally, I couldn't see how running a life coaching business was a possibility because it's such a tough industry as well. Mm. So I remember going to a two-day event. It was a workshop with Paul McKenna and Richard Bandler, who was a co-creator of NLP, and it was called Get the Life You Want. Mm. And I went to it with the intention of watching two master practitioners doing their thing and seeing how I could model some of what they do. And then within about the first hour, I ended up completely absorbed in the content and I was high-fiving people and hugging them and (laughs) getting the life that I wanted. And then... I also at that time had echo in my head that my husband had said to me before I left, at what, time do, at what point does all of this start? He said, you've studied for so long and you go on so many development events and you want to be a coach. When does it start? And he didn't mean it offensively. He just wondered, is there a plan for when you do this? Yeah. I don't think he was expecting me to get back on the Sunday, going to work on the Monday and resign. Yeah. So literally just had that moment where I thought, it's almost that old adage, isn't it? If not now, then when? So I went yeah. into work, resigned, and then didn't have a plan B. So I'm a huge advocate for not having plan Bs because then you've got to make plan A work. Failure is not an option. Yeah, yeah, failure is not an option. I was exactly the same when I left work. And I remember a friend of mine said to me, you just weren't going to fail, were you? And I was like, no. like That just did not even enter my head. This was what I was going to do. And that's the end of it. There wasn't anything else you know. after that. There still isn't. There still isn't. As yeah. much as I think that's the key. Yeah, as much as we kind of go, oh my God, this is like really tough. And it is an emotional roller coaster. There are days where I think, God, you know, there's got to be an easier way of doing things. I, I wouldn't change it at all ever. So I think when you're on that path, you kind of know it, don't you? Yeah, and it is tough. I, I'll often say to people that I'm working with, if they're doing career changing or setting up their own business, or uh, I'll often mentor other coaches, I'll always say to them as a bit of a trick question, what's plan B? And if they can give me a plan B, I'll say that is going to be your undoing. So but interesting. Yeah. So plan B means that plan A's just not got all of your attention. I remember actually saying to my husband when I did resign, I said to him that you know, you know, I could always go back into a job in learning and development. Yeah. So if you need that in, as a backup plan, because this is quite alien to him, mm. he's in education. So I was like, if you need that as a backup plan, you should have that and know that I can go back into a similar role if I needed to, but mm. just know that that's not an option for me. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I've, until you actually said that, I've never actually thought about it, but you're absolutely right. Like there's never been a plan B. 
really got me yeah. that's really got me thinking one of the so you've touched on your childhood briefly you did have yeah. quite a lot of struggles to overcome for you to Definitely. get to that stage what did you kind of what were those things that you kind of went through and how did you kind of use that to kind of spur yourself to to move forwards yeah good question I think I would say that I had a childhood that was mo- no more or less challenging than the next person but I definitely felt like it meant that I had some baggage when I turned 18 and it was probably wasn't until kind of my mid-20s where I thought I actually need to do something about this but I uh, w- was my mum was a single parent so my dad left when we were young uh, and my mum brought me and my little brother up on our own but she was experienced mental health challenges herself so she had obsessive compulsive disorder and I think it used to be called PMT so premenstrual tension but what that meant was that she couldn't always control her anger yeah that meant that the actual environment that me and my brother were brought up in was was quite challenging so there was a lot of kind of physical altercations a lot of things that we shouldn't have seen a lot of arguments and that obviously when you're growing up with that has some kind of impact on your brain chemistry so you're going to have stuff kicking around in there uh, fundamentally that you need to do some work on when you become an adult my dad then came back on the scene and became quite proactive as a parent and we would go and see him and my stepmom quite regularly and then one easter holiday my uh, dad advises that my mum didn't want my brother and I anymore there's a lot of hoo-ha around whether or not that whose side of the family story you fall on but in short what it meant was that we moved in with my dad and my stepmom and we didn't see my mum for another seven years wow huge amount of change and you know upheaval and uncertainty yeah absolutely and it meant as well that I was put in an education system and an environment that I wasn't used to as well so I think my mum had allowed me to be kind of who I was and I'd become quite a camp child Uh, and then suddenly found myself in working class village and needed to kind of really rein that in and became at the same time I was was about 11 okay became quite conscious of being a a gay man and understanding what that was Mm. but also having an appreciation at that time that that wasn't something it was good to be and that I needed to hide that so it just meant that I went into high school at that pivotal time for any child really confused in a very confusing home environment very confusing environment with my own identity and also standing out quite a lot at school so where I'd been brought up meant that comparatively I had a posh accent but I've definitely lost that now (laughs) Uh, but that made me stand out and I didn't really know how to be or who to be or or what I was or where I stood with anything Uh, and at that time that just led to real introversion at school so I shut myself off quite a lot and I always say that I was bullied but I think I was no more people will say we well, are bullied because of your uh, sexuality and I'll say well I think I was because people perceived me as potentially being gay so I was bullied for that but I think I would have been bullied for something else had it not have been that we all yeah. know children are cruel so if it hadn't have been that it might have been my accent or the fact that I was a try hard or you know, so there would have been something. So children smell weakness and they, they go for I it. was just about to say, it's usually the more introverted ones or the ones that don't kind of stand up for themselves or they, you know, they'll find something, won't they? Absolutely. And I didn't stand up for myself. I just did everything I could to hide. I mean, my best friend were, uh, was Irene, who worked in the school library. <laughs> So I used to chill out in the school library. It's actually quite good for me as well because at that time I developed obsessive compulsive disorder and I didn't know at the time that that's what I had, but I was uh, insanely clean and tidy, mm. which meant that going into the library for lunches were quite nice because I spent all my time just tidying bookshelves. So mm. it was quite a nice outlet for my, uh, for my illness at the time. And then I think throughout my teenage years, I was depressed, but I didn't know it. So I used to just think I was melancholy. 
Mm. So I was quite uh, depressed and, you know, felt quite upset most evenings. But I, I thought at that time it was my circumstances. And I think that's the really interesting thing sometimes with depression is that we can think our circumstances are just triggering a certain type of behavior or a certain type of mood. And we don't often dig down into actually though, is this something else? Absolutely. You know, Sometimes it dis- it, dis- it displays as one thing, but actually when you do the work, it, it is usually something completely different from the past, which is triggering you in the present. And usually when you kind of, like you said, find out the kind of what's beneath it, what's beneath it, that's when you start coming to a point where you can kind of heal it and cure it. Yeah. And I think my, you know, my parents at the time, so my dad and my stepmom, with all respect to them, they gave us a really stable household and, you know, all of our needs were met, but they wouldn't have recognized depression or OCD. So mm. It wasn't something that was inside anything they'd experienced. Generational uh, as well, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it wouldn't have been something they were even looking for. So, you know, it was almost a uh, family joke, but I mean, I mean that tongue in cheek, I wasn't teased about it, but I was just tidy. So, they were very aware of the fact that, you know, my bedroom was very tidy to, to the point where I think they probably thought it was unusual, but thought just let him get on with it. And then equally, my dad knew my mum's history. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my maternal parent, my m- maternal bloodline is all obsessive compulsive disorder. So all of the women in my, uh, on my mum's side of the family have it. Mm. so he probably just thought well it's me going down that route and yeah you've picked it up from your mum type thing (laughs) yeah so I just kind of got on with life and then a lot of the OCD uh was stuff that I was doing outside of people's awareness so you know cleaning my school bag and everything in it every night and and stuff like that was things that people wouldn't have seen Mm. but I don't remember being overwhelmed by it 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 was actually a friend at the time, I suppose. It was a real coping mechanism. I don't ever remember the OCD getting on top of me. The obsessive compulsive disorder at that time was definitely something I used to help me to alleviate some of the more painful feelings that I think I would have had to open myself up to. Oh, I absolutely. I think it's kind of like a two-pronged attack because in one way it gives you a distraction, but in another way when your mind is quite confused, it gives you something that you can be, you know, orderly with. So mm. you can use it as a, set, as, a, as a control mechanism in that sense. You know, when your mind isn't in control, you can see things in front of you that are in control. And it's actually a really, really clever uh, way of coping, actually. Yeah, it's an anchor. I think it's yeah. an anchor that you go to. But it's one then that I held on to, and I think... The key with overcoming the obsessive compulsive disorder, I think we're often led to believe it's dealing with the OCD itself. Mm-hmm. Whereas I actually think if you can create a life that you feel you have some control over and you're comfortable yeah. with, you find the obsessive compulsive disorder starts to fall away. That's, that's how it works for me. I absolutely agree. I had it for many, many years when my yeah. son was younger and I used to, <laughs> I laugh about it now, but I mean, honestly, I used to drop my son off at school, go home, polish the whole house and then go to work. I could not, not go home and polish the whole house every time I dropped him off at school. And you know, when like now I just kind of think, wow, like that wouldn't even cross my mind. Oh, I know. Yeah. And the thing is as well that I always find interesting with, with, with all mental health, really, with stress, anxiety and depression, you know, it's, it's crazy in inverted commas when you're doing it. So yeah. when I had it and I'd be brushing my teeth in the toilet because I didn't want to mess the sink or I'd be sat on the living room floor because I didn't want to mess the sofa. I knew it was insane at the point at which I was doing it. So it isn't like you look back on it and go, that was ridiculous. You knew it was ridiculous when you were inside it. But you I'll just tell you a hilarious story. My son was about seven at the time. This is what what started, well, probably a bit older, actually, probably about nine. And this is what flicked my switch in my head. And uh, I used to polish the sink. (laughs) 
And uh, I used to polish the sink. And I remember my son went to go and wash up his own plates. I mean, how many children go and wash up their own plates? Yeah, and um, I know. Well, I said to him, don't you dare wet that sink. And he just looked at me as if to say, are you crazy? Yeah. And I thought, I can't believe I've just told off my son who was going to wash his own plates because I didn't want him to wet the sink. And that was when I thought, okay, I need to start getting on top of this because this is kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, at, at 18, I'd moved back in with my mum. So that's when I reconnected with my mum and I moved out from living with my dad and my stepmom and, and moved in with my mum. And at the time, she had quite a small flat, but I had my, I was given the double bedroom. And so it meant I had my own bedroom, but my mum's obsessive compulsive disorder was with cleaning. Yeah. So every day, she, when I was at college, she used to have to go in and clean my bedroom. And then every day I'd get back from college and have to put everything back in place. Yeah. And it caused such conflict between us that many an evening we'd just be sat on the floor crying, just like oh. at the madness of it all. So oh, it was almost gosh. like the we were reforming our relationship with one another, which was pivotal really for us. Uh, but at the same time, OCD was causing a barrier between us. So it really does It really does start causing challenges in relationships. Really interesting dynamic, isn't it, when you start thinking yeah. about it? How did you kind of, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was, you know, why deal with mental health issues and then decide to become an entrepreneur? Like, how does that happen? <laughs> Yeah, no, good question. The interesting thing was that I, I became a life coach. And when I became a life coach, I, I think I wanted to work for myself. So I, I, I definitely knew that being my own boss was something that appealed to me and having that level of flexibility. I also knew the risk that came with it because I'd had time off sick. So what, throughout my 10-year career, I'd had substantial time off with, with, off with depression. So I knew you know, my own sickness record and that if I went into business for myself how would that work out? I couldn't really take that time off. But I really wanted to work for myself. And when I started out as a life coach, I didn't want to work with mental health. That was a really interesting thing. I thought, I'm not selling on my own story. That makes me feel really uncomfortable. Mm. And I don't want to take on the mental, uh, the mental health care professionals. So I, I respect that you know, people with mental health challenges should see doctors and should potentially be on medication. I thought, oh, I'm, I'm not up for that and taking all of that on. So for about a year, I offered everybody everything which you will know as an entrepreneur is not a good business model. No, no, absolutely uh, not. You end so up having nobody. Yeah, so that puts you in a stressful position anyway. But what I did find is the clients that I were working with had stress, anxiety, and depression. So they were finding me anyway. So I then had a turning point where I thought, actually, maybe I do want to specialize in mental health and maybe I do need to become comfortable with saying I'm a life coach who deals with stress anxiety and depression and then do take on the critics of that so people criticize life coaching anyway so I might as well be criticized for offering life coaching to people with mental health challenges but equally then as an entrepreneur I don't think naively when I went into having my own business I was ready for the mental toll that it takes yeah I, I really wasn't prepared for that I can't I think it's that first day when you wake up and you're a business owner and you have that flurry of excitement and then you have a moment where you think okay who's going to now tell me what it is I need to do yeah yeah. Or what project are we working towards? So in learning and development, it was very project-based. So I always knew what projects we were working towards, what did people need to know by when. Uh, and then suddenly as a business owner, I thought, oh, God, I've got to work all of that out now. Yeah, the phone isn't ringing. Like, how, how, does, how do we get the phone to ring? How do we get people to know about us? How do we... And the, one of the biggest things that I really struggled with, and I've kind of got on top of it now because I'm, what, five, six years in, 
I really struggled with how solitary it is, um, physically solitary. I mean, I'm a single mum, so evenings I'm here by myself. If I don't make plans on a weekend, I'm here by myself. Nine to five, I'm sitting here by myself. So it's really a challenge to be able to pick yourself up. I mean, I'm quite good and, you know, self-motivated and a bit of a workaholic, I have to say. Yeah. So I don't struggle to get myself up out of bed and, you know, get my laptop open and start working. Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, only last week I realized on Thursday night, I hadn't actually seen another human being since Monday night. Um, oh. And I phoned a couple of my friends and I was like, I really just need to speak to some people because I mean, obviously mm-hmm. you have work calls and that kind of thing, but there's not really any kind of support outlet or anyone to really talk to. And I, that is something that I found really challenging that I wasn't prepared for, I don't think. Yeah. And how do you say you manage that now? I'm aware of it a lot more now. So I make sure I, instead of planning in one really hectic week when I'm out every day, I try and do every other day I've got meetings so I can kind of stagger it. I think probably you'll agree when I say, I think you have to be quite aware of your own uh, cycles or, you know, when you can feel yourself getting kind of, oh, I try and make sure that, you know, I've just started with a personal trainer, just to try and have something, you know, for myself. And I think as entrepreneurs as well, we don't have a huge amount that we do for ourselves. Um, I work quite hard. My phone's always on. You know, you don't really get extended holidays. So you have to be quite careful that it doesn't kind of leak into every area of your life. You know, your health ends up suffering. Um, You know, mental health ends up suffering. I mean, we're talking about it like it's awful. I wouldn't change it for the world, but I think you do have to be super aware that it's very easy to start slipping down that path. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you work, particularly if you're working from home initially. So, so many people when they're setting up a business are working from home and then they get that kind of home working mentality. And that's fine when you work maybe for a bigger business and you've got kind of, oh, I'm working from home on Tuesday because the plumber's coming. Yeah. And you, do, you can spend the day in your pajamas and you can, you know, eat crap food and watch this morning and then, you know, leisurely do the work and the work gets done. The challenge that you've got is when you become a business owner and you're working from home is that you can fall into a cycle of that happening every day. And for me, those types of symptoms of working from home were so closely attuned to depression. I agree. Often with people that I work with, I'll uh, rather controversially say depression used to feel like a holiday. So I used to think, so I wasn't caring for myself. It, my, my brain would create depression in order to stop me. And then depression was, you know, when, you, when I was in the thick of it, it was amazing. I would get up late. I wouldn't have to make my bed. I'd eat crap all day. I'd watch television underneath a blanket. I wouldn't have to face people so I had an excuse not to have to deal with people. Wouldn't need to brush my teeth. Wouldn't need to shower. There was something kind of quite appealing about it. Mm. So I think there can be that, but you can so end up when you work from home closely attuned to some of those things. So they're kind of red flags for me now. Interesting, isn't it? Home, there's certain behaviours that for me are real red flags and that just aren't worth the risk. So people are like, oh, Chris, why don't you just chill out though and work from morning in your pyjamas? And I'll go, do you know what? Because it's just not worth the risk. No, you're so right. And I'm exactly the same. I mean, I said that I am quite motivated and I'm always up, you know, showered and kind of ready for work and dressed. And I even put my makeup on, which is daft because I'm not really leaving the house. But for me, you know, if I am working from home and I'm not going out, it just puts you in a different mindset. Like you're actually up and ready for the day. And I think you are right. You have to be really careful that you're not mimicking those kind of behaviors that are kind of Mm. creeping in slowly slowly and yeah you do have to manage it 
I think the bigger challenge in entrepreneurs as well, it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about working with, with entrepreneurs around mental health is I feel like it's the final taboo that will be broken within society because I think we're getting really good at talking about mental health in the workplace now. And we're making a movement now towards people being able to almost come out and share their mental health experiences. I agree, yeah. And we're seeing a breakthrough. I, I've always, people, uh, I was on a course once and somebody said to me, kind of, how would you describe your clients in just a couple of words? And I thought, wow. I said, successfully depressed. Nice. I said, they're successfully depressed. So they're, you know, that's actually the name of my podcast that's coming up. So uh, I'll be interviewing successfully depressed people. But we're often led to believe that when we put a face on depression, anxiety, or stress, that these are people who are crumbling underneath it. And actually, a lot of the times, they can be people who are very high functioning with it. And equally, with some of the people that I've worked with, particularly entrepreneurs, we've discovered when we've dug into their mental health, that actually a lot of the creation of their business was born from fuel from mental health challenges. Absolutely. I mean, this is the same as my podcast on Struggles to Success, because it was exactly the same. There were so many people thinking, oh my God, their social media is amazing. They must be making so much money because of all was going off on holiday and everything yeah. else and every single person I spoke to they were like well the only reason I started my business is because x happened I hit rock bottom and I just knew yeah. that you know that was my time or I had to kind of yeah. grow out of this pile of kind of crap that had just been thrown yeah. on me and I think it's so important to get the message out there that not everything is perfect not everything is yeah. happening particularly with depression because what i have seen in a couple of clients that i've worked with is that they have created successful businesses but that they were fueled by uh, an attempt to fight their depression they then get the fruits of their labors so what society would deem to be success so they get the good house they get the good cars they've got their children in the good schools they've got money in the bank account but then they discover that their depression's not gone yeah and that's a real turning point for a lot of them where they go it's not fair I had depression. I've been fighting it for years. I've put everything into this business. I've now created this life. It's not fair that I'm still depressed. Yeah. And quite often it is an escape, isn't it? It's an escape, takes your mind off it. And then you get to a point where it's like, okay, I can't keep running anymore. I have to kind of face everything that it is, you know, generally that happened when you were younger or whatever it was, you kind of get to that point. And I think you are right that there is a movement. I don't think we're there yet. I think no. there is a movement uh, towards people being a lot more open about mental health. And, and as you just said about the successfully depressed, you know, how many people have been in the media recently who have committed suicide with, with oh, no kind of warning um Chester Benningfield wasn't it he he was with yeah. his wife smiling the day before and killed himself the following day and yeah. there's a lot of work to do and I think people you know like you and hopefully you know people listening to podcasts or doing podcasts yeah. just to kind of give people a bit of reality that's what I'm certainly doing this for to just show people that even though you know you might be struggling you can use that to kind of spur yourself forward and actually make a change and do something different because I think it all feeds into overcoming the depression or the mental health or you know having purpose has been a you know a huge one for me I really try and ingrain that into everything that I do because it just makes you feel as though you're working towards something bigger and I think it just all helps. Mm. I think, uh, yeah, and just to echo what you said, I think a lot of the time we're led to believe that depression is, uh, stress, anxiety, depression are the breaks that we put on our life and that causes us to stop and be at standstill. But actually a lot of the time they are the fuel yeah. and they're not the right source of fuel, but it's for people to gain an understanding that, you know, repurposed some of the things 
that depression and anxiety can actually give us gifts and it's difficult sometimes for us to be able to see that you know the people that i work with with anxiety for example they've got such creative minds i'll often say to them you can create a disaster out of nothing in your mind <laughs> True. So you That's can create the me. whole world coming to an end. <laughs> you begin the thought process and you're, you've got such a level of creativity and thinking skills that you'll create disaster. If you can apply that in a different environment, there is a real opportunity for you to achieve something. It's you know, so true. Yeah, that's interesting. It depression will obviously give us a level of introversion. You know, for example, Winston Churchill. So the, the term "the black dog" obviously comes from Winston Churchill and his relationship with uh, with depression. But for him, it really made him have a deep understanding emotionally of other people. So depression can actually give us a skill set that might not be available to those who haven't experienced it. And that can be repurposed and really allow us to go on and achieve great things, not in spite of our mental health, but because of it. Absolutely. And that's really when I say successfully depressed, let's not lose sight actually that some of that comes with, you know, we, we always say it's one in four, don't we? And th this is the thing that I battle against. So we say one in four people experience a mental health challenge. And I always say, no, one in four people will experience a mental health challenge and say something about it. Yeah, the other, the other person will experience it and suffer in silence. Yeah. And then maybe one or two people at most are just so resilient that they don't know they're up against a mental health challenge. Yeah, you're so right. I think it brings a huge amount of uh, empathy. I think, you know, if you can go through the worst times, something that, you know, I learned that going through Dent when we were talking about what we would do, uh, so why we do what we do, I didn't realise that what I was doing was saving people. I didn't want anyone else to suffer. So I yeah. work with my clients because I never, ever want them to go through what I went through. And, you know, I had to work through minimum wage jobs working three jobs just to kind of keep my son you know food on the table and I never ever want anybody to have to go through what I went through and it yeah. was so powerful for me to actually realize that's why I'm working so hard that's why I do what I do and I think if I hadn't have gone through that I wouldn't have had that level of empathy yeah yeah that's really key that's a yeah. really big skill that will come from having experienced it and how you fashion your life around it so i think it's so honorable that you fashioned a life around supporting people to not experience what you experience i think it um it makes you bitter or it makes you better and i've tried to take yeah, the better amazing. rather than the bitter um oh, we need that on a postcard that's amazing yeah 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 definitely maybe we can uh, call this pot that's what we'll yeah, call yeah 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 what would you say are, have you got some kind of key skills that you offer out to clients to help them if they were having mental health challenges? What are your kind of key takeaways, do you think, for people that are listening? I think self-care is the first. First and foremost, it's self-care. So when I start working with a person, one of the initial things that I'll do, and they want to really get into the nitty gritty of what they're experiencing, so that, you know, it's the first opportunity for a lot of them that they've had to be able to speak to another person who potentially understands what they're going through. Yeah. But before we get to that, I'll always say, right, we need to first focus on your vitality because we're probably going to be working together for the next three months and this is going to be one of the most difficult battles you've ever experienced but this is the one worth winning yeah. so we need to create you as the most vital version of yourself so self-care and i kind of term it vitality because we're often led to believe that the opposite to depression is happiness but it really isn't it's vitality it's just yeah. wanting to be here feeling like you serve a purpose feeling like there's meaning 
So I will do a vitality checklist with a person where I'll get them to look at all the key areas of their life. And there are some generic ones and then ones that are unique to the individual and have them set just small goals uh, in each of those areas. And they might be daily or weekly goals, really similar to what you said, actually, about getting up at a specific time. Yep. So knowing that if you lie in, that can be a sign that your mental health is going to struggle. So if you get up at a certain time, putting makeup on. So for some of the people that I work with, uh, it will be getting made up because that will make them feel better. There's, you know, there'll be a load of people out there that say it shouldn't, but if it is at the time at which we're working together, then let's utilize it rather than fight against it. Yeah. Uh, for guys, it's often getting dressed. So some of the guys that I work with will say, you know, to not be in sloggies. So yeah. they ban themselves from being in sloggies and say, actually, I've got to put, even if it's just jeans and a t-shirt on, I feel better prepared for the day. So really self-care is one of the initial skills and then gaining a deep understanding of yourself. So for those with depression and anxiety, actually, I will often say to them, what I want you to do and know that I'm there to support you as you do this is if you have a low moment, rather than fight it, lean into it and listen and ask yourself what's the reason you're creating this because i do believe that the unconscious brain only creates these challenges in order to bring our attention to something that we need to deal with yeah i agree absolutely and that could be something huge so that could be something huge and we you know from from our childhood our teenage years trauma that we've experienced or it could be something smaller like you know what i didn't look after myself yesterday or do you know what? I really shouldn't have had curry at night because the next no, day... No, indigestion. Yeah. Yeah. So I have that. I, I have like certain foods that I've learned now. You know what? They do not make me feel great the next day. You know, they give me low moods. If I have like really high fat foods on an evening, like I've, you know, committed a sin and had like the kebab meat and chips, for example, yeah. I know the next day in the morning I'm going to feel low and I'll lean into that and go, what are you feeling low about? And then I'll go, do you know what? It's kebab meat and chips. Yeah. And it's the sin of eating them. It's just the fat in my body is making me feel bad. And again, it goes back to your point of when you feel like rubbish you, or when you're on holiday, you eat rubbish because you're on holiday. But actually the similarity to the depression cycle and getting back into that, it's just one of those small things that if you are aware of it, it can stop that. And I, and I really yeah. do think it is about the small things sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's no, look, it's no accident, is it, that people come back from holiday and say they feel like they need a holiday? Yeah. <laughs> so something's gone wrong on their holiday if they feel like that. But yeah, I think having a really deep understanding of yourself and from, from the perspective of how I work with people, that's about really understanding your thought processes, the beliefs that you have about yourself, the things that you value. So it's beliefs, values, past decisions and memories are kind of the four things that when I'm working with a person, we're going to spend probably about six weeks of those three months gaining a deep understanding of. Because I'll often say with a person, it, what, if we keep digging and digging and digging, and once we've worked it out, all we then need to do is break it. Mm. But it's finding out what it is. Why is it doing it like this? And then, and then we can start working through that process. So I think it's about self-care self -care and then self-awareness. And it's that we, think. we often think it's all things like, you know, being motivated and procrastination and positivity and all of that sort no, of stuff. No, they're just surface, aren't they? They're just a surface. Yeah. At the deepest level, look after yourself and know what's going on in your brain and what's working against you and start working through that stuff. And then you've got the strongest foundation on which to build everything else. 
I think we so naturally avoid traumas and so naturally avoid memories or bad things that happen. I think people create a life around avoidance. Mm. And, you know, when you said these little voices keep popping up or, you know, you're sabotaging yourself or whatever that is, just being able to sit with that, it sounds like, like it's so simple, but actually, you know, the majority of your life has been created by avoiding sitting with that. Um, yeah. It's really tough, isn't it? How do you work with people? Do you offer kind of ongoing support or how, what would you recommend to somebody if they were kind of looking to engage a coach or, or work with some, you know, someone in the mental health field? Yeah, I'd say speak to anybody first. So speak to a counsellor, a psychotherapist, a psychologist, a life coach, because they're all equipped to let you know who's the right person that you should be with. So that's the really important thing first. If they're reaching out to me, for example, I'd always start with a call with them. It should be 30 minutes, but, you know, I'll keep them on the line as long as they've got. Mm. But what I'm really looking to do then is gain an understanding of the challenges they're experiencing and how they're experiencing them and gain a sense of whether or not it feels like they need to do more work on their present situation and moving forward or on understanding the past. And if it feels like the majority of the work needs to be on them gaining an understanding of the past, it might be then that I send them to a a psychotherapist or a counsellor and say, Mm -hmm. actually, maybe it's somebody that you need to work with. And they'll often go away and do that process and then come back to me. Yeah. Because I do a type of alternative therapy, I'm also comfortable in doing some of the working through the past stuff. So it's about me gaining a sense of how comfortable I am that I can work through the things the person needs to work through. And then I will work with somebody over a three-month period. And over those three months, they'll be seeing me at least weekly for 90-minute sessions. And then they get eight until eight daily support, which can be particularly useful, for example, with people with anxiety, because I'll often say that when somebody's got anxiety and in the, in the throes of it, it's a little bit like a possession. Mm. So I'll say, right, I need to carry out a telephone exorcism. So when you're experiencing it, if you can do everything you can to either get on the phone to me or put, have somebody put you on the phone to me, I can talk to the demon. Yeah. And we can talk to your mind as it's doing what it's doing and I can gain a deeper understanding of it and then kind of play back that understanding to you the next time I see you. And then we can work out what it is we need to change, overcome or break of that that pattern or that cycle that's a really interesting approach what kind of things generally come up uh it's a lot of the time it's catastrophizing right and it is anxiety serving some form of a safety mechanism yeah so it's preventing the person from doing something which they feel uncomfortable doing so anxiety will often so if somebody's not confident and you're constantly giving a program to your brain of i'm not confident i can't do this i'm not confident i can't do this then your brain will create a panic attack when you've got yeah. to do it yeah. because it will do well we need to do everything we possibly can to avoid this person doing this so it'll create a panic attack yeah you know the brain the brain's just doing what it thinks it needs to do in order to serve five yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's just kind of us re-educating the brain that that's not how we want to work anymore and equally becoming comfortable with doing those things that we think we can't do, you know, because we can do anything. You know, I always say my mantra is, it's possible, I can do it, I deserve it. Hmm. So we, we are capable of doing absolutely anything. The only thing that will ever hold us back from it is our thought processes around it. And I think that goes back to what we said before, isn't it? It's catching those small little voices and just being super aware of those super, you know, those small voices because they are the ones that build over time and then create this kind of panic or depression, whichever one it is, you know, anxiety. It starts from a small seed, doesn't it? I think. 
Yeah, and and also we've got a bigger challenge now that past uh, generations were dealing with the thought processes in their head and were going through things like, what will people think of me? Mm. Now, in this social media generation that we're in, we're, we're exposed to a level of feedback that isn't good for us. So even down to the positive feedback, so likes on Facebook, they cease to be of any value now because we're more impacted by the absence of them than the existence of them. So true, yeah. So, you know, if we go on and put a post on or a picture on and we get 26 likes, it has very little impact on our neurochemistry or in any of the chemicals that will be released in our brain. Yet if we put something on and have an expectation of it having a high like factor and it doesn't get anything, the impact on our neurochemistry and the brain and the brain chemicals is higher. So because of the way that we wire ourselves, we're actually more triggered by the absence of attention than we are by actually... Uh, receiving it and when people say give me an example of that I'll always say that taking a compliment how easily will you take criticism to heart over how easily would you take a compliment absolutely true you just I mean we're wired for connection aren't we really so when that connection isn't there whether it be through Facebook likes you're dealing with loss you're dealing with kind of disconnection and that is fundamentally what we're looking for as humans we're wired for connection so social media is actually disconnecting us in that sense over and over and over hundreds and hundreds of times a day Um, and it's no wonder that it has such profound impacts on people and particularly profound impacts on the younger generation whose yeah. brains are not really equipped to work in this way. And, you know, there's real, you know, research suggesting now that it's, it's changing the wiring of adolescent brains and their neurochemistry and the types of chemicals that are released. And, you know, it, it, ca- it could be a force for good. So I'm not opposed to social media, but we've really got to work with uh, those providers to get them to better manage these pieces. I'll often say to people that I feel absolutely blessed that social media didn't exist in my teenage years. Oh, I agree. Because I walked through my door when I got home and I felt safe. I had my little patterns on my processes and my low mood, but I kind of felt safe and secluded from the challenges I was experiencing. Had I then have been getting texts, notifications and Facebook posts and been either comparing myself to others or having somebody bullying me through, the, through a cyber mechanism rather than in a school, I, I'm comfortable to go on the record and I don't think I would have made it to 18. Uh, yeah, but absolutely. How, how I felt in those teenage years, that would have been for me, I think, the straw that broke the camel's back. There's no way I would have had the resilience to overcome that. I've seen it, unfortunately, you know, I mean, I, um, I was a young mum, I was pregnant at 17, so there's not a huge amount of years between my son's school years and my school yeah, years. But in terms of what happened between the two, I mean, in my last year of school was just when we started getting mobile phones and, you know, yes. it was the ones with the little aerials on the top and you could play yeah. snake on there and that was about that. it. Um, yeah. But even then, I mean, if anybody wanted to speak to you, they'd have to call the house phone and generally, you know, your mum would answer it. And, you know, you always had that level of kind of distance, whereas my son going through school, geez, it is non-stop. And I mean, I'm quite lucky that um, his dyslexia has actually helped this in some way. He doesn't have a huge interest in social media, uh, he's, you know, with the struggle with reading and writing. It's just not something that he really engages in a huge amount. And he is very busy, you know, he's going to work and he's built his own car and all of that stuff. So he's quite a hands-on type person. But even in high school, I mean, the police had to get involved with the cyberbullying that was going on. And it's relentless, relentless. It just has such a profound impact on them. Yeah. And and I think 
we we don't build the right skills at that age primarily within education anyway you know that you know education needs an overhaul to more skills-based learning so that people do create resilience mm. uh, interestingly actually lead city council i saw a post on social media so it can be a force for good Absolutely. informing that Leeds city council are going to be investing uh, five hundred thousand pounds into uh, life coaching as an intervention a mental health intervention for teenagers that's amazing and going out and reaching into schools and really starting to equip uh, children with the skills because i think the problem the, the challenge here is whilst you know uh, facebook instagram the likes can take some recommendations of how they can adapt their platform i, I think it actually again it goes to that deeper level don't you think sonia where it's about their skill set mm. and their response as opposed to what's happening around them and i think it's really working with them to gain a level of resilience adaptability empathy understanding it's all those sorts of core skills that if we can build those early enough you know social media should have a lesser impact on them anyway and they will have such a better understanding and better kind of life having been taught those skills earlier on and i think one of the biggest challenges that teenagers have is that they don't understand the long-term implications some of the things that they in my experience of it that they were sharing on social media they did not understand the long-term profound impact that that was going to be having not only on other people but on themselves and they just don't their brains aren't wired yet you know the right way for them to be able to understand the long-term impacts you know they didn't understand the power of it how big it can get um you know something goes viral it's out there it's going to be out there forever but that you know that isn't kind of and and i think the schools are unsure how to deal with it i don't think they really know the power of it either um so i think we're in we're in for quite a big shake-up hopefully and i think that's probably quite a good step in the right direction for leeds hopefully more councils kind of yeah, I would hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, messaged the, I sent an email to the council saying I absolutely must be involved with this. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, one last question for you, Chris. I just wanted you to clarify, if possible, in your own words, because I'm sure people have different um, kind of explanations. But what would you say is the difference between a maybe CBT type counsellor and a life coach? What would you say the two, you know, the main differences are between the two? Yeah, really good. So life coaching uses a different set of tools and techniques. So we would look at the situation a person's in, where it is they want to be and what they can do uh, in order to move between those. And then the type of work that I would do would work at a deep level so that the change would happen within the room. So that's how I'll describe it. If somebody comes to me versus a cognitive behavioral therapist, I would say that I'd be looking to work with you in a way that we can create the change in the room together and then you would go out and start implementing it whereas with cognitive behavioral therapy it takes more of an approach of the person working through the challenges in a specific way as they experience them outside of the room so when they start getting specific thought processes or patterns of behavior it's specific tools or techniques that they would use in order to understand them more at the time that they were happening and to make adaptions to those processes as and when they occur Ah, interesting. So how do you think people could tell whether a coach would be better for them or uh, more of a counsellor type approach? I think it's talk to them. So I I will often say to people, talk to, if you're going to take a life coach, talk to multiple coaches. If you're going to take a counsellor, talk to multiple counsellors and get them just to explain to you what it would be like to work with them. And then you make a decision as to whether or not you, where it is you think you need to be. I think in the industry, we get too caught up on should a person be with a counsellor or a coach or a psychotherapist or a psychologist? And I actually just think it comes down to individual choice. 
Oh, yeah. Interestingly, you, you mentioned oh. the kind of the, the suicide element, and obviously there was a suicide of the uh, of, uh, Mike from Love Island very yeah. recently. And his friend Montana went on to this morning and just mentioned how uh, Mike had gone to a psychotherapist and had he stuck with it i think you know it would have had a positive impact on him but that he left feeling like he just needed tools and techniques that he could start using straight away which i find the majority of my clients are actually male which i never saw really coming when i started out but for them they do like that forward focused approach tools techniques what can i do in order to get from where i am now to move forward i'm less concerned about how i arrived here that's really i was just about to say it's really interesting because that's quite similar to my i had cbt probably 10 years ago if not longer than that and really did really help Uh, my anxiety was actually off the scale of you know they give you a piece of paper that you have to kind of like fill in and they said it was kind of like the top of the top um so it certainly got that down i mean i left the job that i just was not happy in, so i'd made you know life changes as well as going there but what i tended to find over the time was that i'm I I think I needed that forward focus. I'm quite a forward focused person. I'm not really somebody that likes to, I hate using the word dwell, but I don't, I don't like the thought of that. I much prefer the proactive uh, forward thinking approach. So when I went to a coach, uh, it started off as business coaching, but quite quickly kind of moved into life coaching and it was the best thing I ever did honestly it was it was really I probably did more in those 12 months than I had in the previous kind of five to ten you know so I think it is about I'll flip that question back on you I think it'd be interesting for people to hear how would you say that the two things differed so for having experienced uh, CBT and coaching how would you say they differed for you I did uh, psychotherapy as well. I couldn't get on with that at all. CBT was really good because I think the same as what you said, it get, it gives you those tips and techniques. Yeah. And we did talk about previous stuff and, you know, she was brilliant and she was actually trained as a hypnotherapist as well. So she brought quite a, a lot of other modalities and, and approaches into, you know, what you speak about, which personally for me, I really like. I, th- I like people who can kind of pull from Eastern and Western approaches, yes. which are very different, but actually actually impactful when pulled together i think the one was kind of focused more on the past and the now whereas coaching was much more focused on the past present and future in that sense yeah Uh, probably a lot more future led but you had to deal with the past in order to be able to achieve what you wanted in the future and I, i prefer that kind of mindset yes oh that's really good that's really does that, clear. does that fit in with what you kind of yeah feel? i always say it's, it's i always say it's leanings so counseling and psychotherapy are going to lean towards the past yeah whereas coaching is going to lean towards the future but there will definitely be crossover between the two yeah so interesting I, I always just describe it as leanings so what we do together will more lean towards the future but i know that we need to work on the uh, on the past enable in order to give you the freedom to be able to move forward and that equally for a lot of people coaching can be a longer term relationship so I, i've got people who we did the three months they achieved their results but they've been with me now for years and mm. they like to come every fortnight and kind of think about the previous week that they've had 
gain a deeper understanding of it through some of the questioning that I'll offer them and then kind of set their goals and move forward. I think quite often um, it's such a brilliant approach to do that because I think, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm quite self-motivated and all the other stuff, but when you're kind of an entrepreneur, especially, or a business owner, everything's in your own head. And it, yeah. it's really nice to just have somebody that knows you, that you trust, that can give you another perspective or catch you on your own kind of mental cycles that you haven't kind of picked up yourself because you, you yourself Absolutely. every day, you can't notice everything that you do and go, hang on a minute, what was this behavior? Or hang on a minute, what's going on here? And I think just having that, I was going to use the word somebody to challenge you, I don't mean mm -hmm. that in any type of negative way, but somebody to just go, oh, hang on a minute, what about this? And you're like, oh, now I see how I've been sabotaging myself or why I'm not feeling great or why I'm eating rubbish food or whatever it is. But And it's interesting you say challenge, actually, because that, that's probably one of the best definitions that I'll give of whether or not a person's found a good life coach or not. So if I've had a call with somebody, I'll always say to them, go and look at other life coaches because it's really important you set up a relationship with somebody that you feel comfortable with and who'll be able to get the results with you. But you want to make sure when you're looking for a coach that you feel confident that they will challenge you and support you in equal measure. I agree, yeah. It's a very, very fine balance that some coaches don't always get right. And if you lean more towards a supporting, what that can mean is that the person is just having a lot of very nice conversations, but they're not moving forward. Yeah. And if you lean too much towards the challenging, it can feel like you're asking a person to fake it until they make it. And yeah. then you just kind of send them out and, you know, gene them up and going, yeah, you could do this, go on. And then they're not actually feeling supported when they're out there doing it. I mean, we have this in, in our clients quite often. They'll be like, oh, well, we've worked with someone else and they've forced me to do videos on social media or forced me to do this. And, for, and I'm like, what? And they're like, and I just end up not doing anything because it's too far out of my comfort zone. So what we try and do, and I'm sure, you know, your approach is probably the same. If something's too far out of your comfort zone, you'll just do nothing. So you need to actually just take one tiny step out, one tiny step out and support them in that tiny step. And then the brain goes, oh, that tiny step was fine. I can take another tiny step. But if somebody's just going, Going, come on, go and do this, go and do this. You're like, oh God, no, it's just too much. I can't do it. So yeah. I think you have to be quite aware of that balance. Yeah. And it's just making it unique to that individual. Yeah, absolutely. No, no two coaching programs that I've delivered have ever been the same. In yeah. format, tools, techniques, process, anything. They've just been completely kind of built around that person and that person's needs and their objectives. Which is the best way. Nobody's the same, yeah. are they? Um, thank you so much, Chris, for coming on. Can you just quickly tell us how people would get in touch with you, uh, website addresses or email addresses or anything? Yeah, absolutely. They would go to thecoachcollective.co.uk and on there, there's all of my contact details and then the tools and techniques that I've mentioned today. So the Vitality Checklist, for example, there's about 28 resources that people can download on there if they want to kind of start with some form of self-help. And as I said before, I'm always happy to point a person in the right direction. So if any listener just wants to drop me an email or book a call with me so that I can help them find the right support, even if that's not life coaching, then I would welcome a call from them oh thank you chris that's lovely and uh, i'm going to actually go and do your vitality checklist because i'm going to yes. be interested i'll probably get about two out of 36 but <laughs> at least i know i've got a basis to work on <laughs> yes well you build it around yourself so you'll always score high oh thank right thank you chris thanks for coming on it's been fabulous it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me sonia thank you thanks take care
watching you, watching you, watching you, watching you, watching you.